The information in today's episode is not to be used as medical advice. If you are currently struggling with or dealing with something out of the ordinary, we highly recommend talking directly to your provider. Welcome to the Flow State Podcast, where we're all about finding balance. We're your hosts, Monica Groney and Nora Candido. Now let's get into the flow. Welcome back, Flow State listeners. Hope you are enjoying the start of season three so far, just as much as we are. Today, Monica and I wanted to revisit a topic that we got a lot of feedback around with some requests for a digestible version. So if you haven't already, go back and listen to the episode with Dr. Stacey Sims that talks all about cycle-specific training. And for us as females, this is something that we should really understand. But I want to give the caveat of just starting off that both that episode and this one today... Maybe this is one we might need to take a couple of notes or bookmark a certain section or come back and listen to it again. You also don't need to know all of this information. So invitation to just listen and take what you need from this episode and know that it will always be here for you. Yeah, Nora and I were just talking and this episode was one of our favorites because we learned so much and Stacy is an amazing expert, but we totally understand that as she is a researcher and a scientist, some of the language was confusing. And you're like, what the heck was that? We've listened back to this episode multiple times, and we really just want to bring it down to earth for you all and share what our biggest takeaways were, because there really is a lot of what I think is groundbreaking information that we, there are a lot of myths busted and just a lot of really cool information for women, especially women who are curious about training and being active and wanting to live a long and healthy life. Yeah. If you're interested in learning about collagen, how much protein you should be eating, what workouts you should be doing during your cycle, how hormones play a role, keep listening. This is the episode for you. If not, I'll catch you in the next one. (laughs) I would love love to hear even for you, Monica, like what has changed for you since you listened to that episode? I think it just reinvigorated or kind of solidified some of the things that I was already doing, you know, have maintained a really high protein diet as well as I think the biggest one is probably since, since I really have dug into Dr. Stacey Sims research is adding in sprint interval training and being super mindful of the moderate intensity, what we often refer to as HIT training, and what I think today's media refers to as HIT training. So trying to reduce the amount of that in my regimen just from a stress standpoint and creating that kind of stress response that you need for a reaction in your body through, hit, uh, through sprint interval training. What about for you? Yeah, I was not previously sprinting. And even after the episode, like got on a football field and started running and, and felt ridiculous at first. It was like, I forget how to move my body like this. It was pretty comical, honestly. But I have definitely noticed a difference. I also wasn't really following a program up until about six weeks ago. And since being more consistent on that program... I've noticed tremendous gains for myself and just feeling stronger, feeling more comfortable in my body, feeling pretty buff, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, I just had one of my friend's boyfriends. He thought I was his girlfriend and he was like, babe, your butt's looking great. (laughs) I was like, thanks to all the squats I've been doing. (laughs) Not your girlfriend though. (laughs) So yeah, the strength training makes like such a difference. And I feel like for me, it was noticeable pretty rapidly. Hey there, Flow State Podcast listeners. It's your host, Monica. I wanted to interrupt this episode real quick to share with you a little bit about my brand, Marea. Marea is a nutritional company that helps support women who are dealing with symptoms of hormone imbalance. I don't know about you, but I struggled with awful periods for over 17 years. 
Head back to season one, episode five, to learn more about my story and struggles with PMDD. When I discovered the life-changing benefits of having a solid foundational multivitamin in my everyday routine, my life was changed forever. I had more energy, my moods were balanced, I was able to resume life as usual and feeling normal sometimes just feels so freaking good. That's why I teamed up with dietitians, nutritionists, naturopathic doctors, and OBGYN to create the best possible foundational multivitamin for women who experience symptoms of hormone imbalance. I am so excited to share this with you. If you haven't checked it out yet, head to www.mareawellness.com. And of course, for all of our listeners, I have a special discount. You can use the code FLOWPOD, F-L-O-W-P-O-D at checkout to get a special discount. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, that is common for people that are more like novice or beginners, or if you've been taking a break and then you start a program, you're going to see those gains pretty quickly. Uh, That's just how our bodies work, which is really, really motivating to continue the work that you're doing. And hopefully that also compounds into better sleep, better energy. You're maybe making different nutrition choices because you're supporting uh, and you're having more healthful behaviors in your body. So I call this our upward spiral when I do this work with clients and I definitely feel that you're investing in yourself. Yeah, for sure. All right. Should we dive in? Let's dive in. Okay. So we're going to kind of start, and this is where we started in the original episode too, but was just getting into the details of how women are actually different than men when it comes to our training and our needs around training. So I think let's first just talk about like the actual physical differences, maybe starting with the fact that we have estrogen and progesterone. So estrogen is a female's testosterone and is responsible for the actual firing of our muscles and that muscle contraction. So when we think about building muscle, maintaining muscle, estrogen is a big positive for females. And I think that this then makes sense if we think about perimenopause and menopause as estrogen starts to decline. And what gets claimed a lot in this time is that like metabolism is changing. That's what's spoken about a lot. Although from the research that I've seen and heard people talk about is that metabolism actually stays pretty flat. There isn't a huge metabolism shift. It's more that that like estrogen decline is occurring and thus we aren't having the same muscle contraction and we're losing muscle, which is a place for us to send glucose. And then there's more glucose in the bloodstream. So that creates obviously some changes in our body. Yeah. Other things that I think are really interesting, obviously, as a gut and hormone dietitian is there's a lot of gut microbiome changes that are accompanied with the changes in estrogen. And those gut changes can actually predispose us or cause more weight changes and insulin resistance, which is what we were just talking about, as well as shown to increase cortisol or stress hormones. So all of those things combined can really lead to those body composition changes. So having a really freaking solid foundation heading into your perimenopausal and menopausal years is so helpful. If you have this reservoir of lean mass and lean tissue that you can preserve, they have actually seen that it helps people go through the menopause transition easier. So for me, like that's a pretty big incentive to want to do this work now among a lot of other benefits that we'll definitely dive into today too. Yeah. It's kind of like the earlier you can build that habit. Obviously, if you go into those years with more muscle mass, you're going to kind of come out the other end better. And as well as you just have built that habit into routine, you've done resistance training, strength training for several years, why would you change later in life? So I think building that habit as early as you can. And one of the things we talked about pretty deeply in the episode with Stacy was just the mindset that women have around resistance training. And hopefully we're starting to shift that conversation. But you know, a lot of times women show up at a gym and want to lose weight, and they're shown cardio machines, and we don't really go towards the weight area of the gym. But 
I think that needs to change. And I'd love to see women, you know, picking up the barbells and the dumbbells and just feeling more confident in that area of the gym. So that is one of my huge goals is hopefully changing that mindset for women around long and lean to strong. Yeah. I also big takeaway from you too, you know, a lot of the like boot camp style classes are the hit classes that you were talking about in the beginning, which hit is just high intensity interval training for those of you that don't know. But like the F45s, the Orange Theory, the Berries Boot Camp, Soul Cycles, all of those are putting our heart rate in a zone that is creating more stress in our body. And it's not creating the stress that's going to build muscle. It is just increasing that cortisol in our bodies. So you might not be seeing the results that you're expecting. If you're committed and doing regular exercise, but you're not noticing positive changes, obviously something's not working. If you feel more stressed or drained after a workout than feeling energized, like we shouldn't be leaving the gym and feel like we're going to collapse. I think I love classes and maybe it's a once in a while thing, but it shouldn't be our bread and butter. Yeah. And that's really when you're spending 40 plus minutes in that moderate intensity, like zone three, zone four, which is that pace that you feel in an orange theory class. And you spent a significant amount of time there. And that's kind of why the sprint interval training in contrast to these HIIT classes, high intensity classes is more beneficial because you're actually fully recovering. And the interval that you're at a very high heart rate, like the top of your zones is 30 seconds or less. So you're going for 30 seconds or less, and then you're fully recovering. And it really allows your body to have a stress response, a positive stress response to make changes but not have that stress response that's telling your body like store fat because we are in a danger situation. So that's what we're trying to avoid is those 40 plus minutes in a moderate to high intensity zone just creates a response in our body that's saying danger, hold on to your fat because we're like on the run. (laughs) Right. Fight or flight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think let's, let's dive in like during our reproductive years you know, what is the best training format for us? What should we be focusing on and how does that change over the lifespan? Yeah. So reproductive years, because we still do have that estrogen, that ability to respond and fire our muscles really well with that quote unquote, like female's testosterone, which is our estrogen hypertrophy training does work during this time because that is a higher rep resistance training. So higher rep weight training, we're using physical weights, we're doing, you know, eight to 15 reps, and that can work. However, for females in general, lower rep, like six to eight rep is preferred. So if you are looking at programming, and you're seeing that it's like 30 walking lunges, maybe consider in your mind, okay, could I bring this down to 12 total, which would be six each side of a walking lunge and increase my weight so that at that six rep period, I am can maybe do two more reps. And so a lot of times you'll hear if you've worked with a trainer or you've seen programming, it'll be like 80% for five reps of a back squat, something like that. And for me, the way I determine 80% is typically like, do I think I could do two more reps of this at this weight? Also called reps in reserve, RIR. Yeah. So play around with that too. If you're new to strength training, it might just start with body weight because that is a form of resistance training. So it's all about where you're starting. But I think if you are someone who regularly does strength programming and sees programming or works with someone and they're pushing you towards higher reps, see if you could pull it back and maybe increase the weight. Yeah. Definitely. And I just in terms of like definition of hypertrophy, if people have never heard that term before, that's really like we're going to be creating more muscle mass because that volume and that weight, right, is going to fatigue those muscles and cause more muscle fibers to be made. Whereas the lower reps and the higher weight is enough to send the stimulus to our brain of we're doing the workout, we're getting the cognitive benefits, we're getting the immune benefits, all of the things, but not as much of that. Like you're not bulking. And I feel like that's just the biggest misconception around lifting is if I start lifting, I'm going to get big. And that's not true. 
Yeah, not true. It would take a lot of food and a lot of lifting for you to get big, quote unquote big. Bodybuilders eat a ton of food. So yeah, you're not going to like explode and become bodybuilder status, but you will get toned and love the response. Definitely. And yeah, you and I have talked about this too, in terms of like people seeking weight loss or fat loss, like that's not really how it works either. Like our body doesn't have a preference between burning fat and burning muscle. We're breaking both of them down. So when you want to recomposition your body, you're going to lose fat, but you're also going to lose muscle. So making sure you're getting enough protein and you're really working on preserving and using that lean mass tissue by weight training, that's how you tone up and recomp your body is by doing those things. You're not just going to lose fat. Yeah. And inevitably, if you gain more muscle percentage wise, you'll have less fat. So like for me, I kind of hate the the term weight loss because a lot of times it's not about actually making the number on the scale less. I find that when I'm in my best shape and my clothes are fitting amazing and I feel really good, the number on the scale is bigger. And sometimes psychologically that can be hard because the media has driven home to us for years. Like women want to be like lose weight and weight loss and there's a whole weight loss industry. But that number on the scale oftentimes is more when we are feeling our best. Yeah. Muscle weighs more than fat. It's more dense. Also, our health is not indicated by a number on the scale at all. You have people that live in smaller bodies that are quote unquote unhealthy of people living in larger bodies that are healthier. So really like it is not the whole picture by any means. And let's just throw BMI in there while we're talking about this. That's also not a a good measurement of anything. Joke number. Sorry. (laughs) Absolutely. It's literally created in the 1800s by some scientists and they just don't have a better measurement. Like throw the scale out, like focus on how you're feeling, how, like Monica said, how your clothes are fitting. Do you have better energy? Do you feel like you can do the things that you want to do? Like, that's my goal of training. Like I want to be able to lift heavy things and put them in my car when I need to and feel good, feel strong. Yeah. And it's also okay if you want to create changes of how you look, like we can have desires to change our body and be strong or be more athletic looking or whatever that is. That's great. Just having a healthy relationship with that. Maybe go back and listen to the episode we did with Claire. But I think there's so many different sides to this coin. Okay. So in a typical week for a female in their reproductive years, what is our ideal training going to look like? I mean, I think this can vary for sure. Here is my positioning on this. We are doing at least three sessions a week of resistance training, strength training, however you would like to call that. That is like lifting heavy shit. So trying to build muscle, two days a week of sprint interval training. And so that is, you know, 30 seconds on, full rest, four, five sets. And that can look really different. You can do that at the end, like 30 seconds on and full rest for five reps. It might take 10 minutes total. It's a very small period of time. So you can add that on to the end of a strength training session that was 40 minutes. And then you have 10 minutes of sprint training and you have a 50 minute workout. I personally think no one should be working out for longer than an hour unless you're like training for a specific event. There's just no need to go and spend hours in the gym at a certain point. Like it's not benefiting you at all. And then additionally, I love zone two training and think we should all be doing aerobic base training. One, because it's not creating like a huge stress response in our body. And two, that's where we're building aerobic base. It's great for our like cardiovascular system. Like it's great because a lot of times people will do it outside. You're getting outside. And that's where we are actually burning fat as well. Yeah, that like metabolic health benefits really comes from the zone two work too, which like that was also new to me in the last six months or so. Like if I wanted to go for a run, I was trying to run as fast as I could just for as long as I could. And it was not an hour. It was not at a moderate pace. I was redlining a lot of the time. So like this is much more sustainable and just easier on the body for sure. Yeah, it's actually been interesting too, as I train for a really long trail race this summer, 
I've been focusing a lot on zone two over the winter and going into this season, and it makes a huge difference. Like when I'm actually running, my splits are better. I'm able to maintain my heart rate at a lower level, even like higher speeds. So it's been really cool to actually see like an aerobic change and an aerobic difference. And as someone who has been preconditioned, conditioned, I guess, to believe that like exercising means you must be laying on the floor sweating and breathing heavy at the end of it. It is really boring and really hard to do the zone two because it's like walking or, you know, a slow like cycle. So it can be challenging, but if you have a dog, it makes it a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) Our shameless plug for our pets. Yeah. Let's also talk about what reproductive years, what is perimenopause and menopausal years? Do you want to talk about that, Nora? Yeah, I was just going to say briefly before we jump into the next phase, because if you are experiencing any type of hormonal dysfunction, then things are going to shift a little bit where even in like the lifting sessions might, I personally recommend not exceeding over 30 minutes to really protect your hormones. Um, So this is for someone that might not be getting their period or they have irregular cycles or If you're transitioning off of birth control, for example, it can be a more challenging time on your body just in terms of stress. So I find ways that we can manipulate that. And I think that looks like having longer rest periods, but still doing the weight training. And maybe that's just less volume for you, or maybe it's two sessions a week instead of the three. And just more restorative practices at this time. Again, from my personal experience, that was a pretty integral part and healing from coming off of hormonal birth control. And I've seen that show up in my practice as well. Yeah. So experiencing any kind of hormonal imbalance, irregularities with your period, I really see like still doing those three strength sessions a week, like Nora said, higher rest for sure. And maybe like, it's just eliminating the sprint sessions because the zone two is still great. So that could be a thing to be thinking about if you're sitting here being like, okay, but I don't have a period or my periods are really heavy. And we'll talk a little bit too about the actual sinking of the phases in just a second. Yeah. Also, this is where like nutrition piece around. If you have any sort of hormonal dysfunction, you need to be eating enough. It's just like plain and simple. But yeah, perimenopause, we talked a little bit about in the beginning. This is where like a lot of the changes are starting to happen in the body. So going in with that Uh, good storage of lean mass tissue is going to be really, really important for setting us up for an easier transition. But recommendations, and these we've kind of boiled down from the episode with Stacey Sims, was decreasing the extended cardio sessions, right? Like that's not going to be helpful. Really getting out of the moderate, moderate intensity zone, working on the heavy lifts, and that looks like five to six reps for four sets max. And then if you're in your like late perimenopausal state early, post menopause, doing two to three sets as well of that sprint interval training and three lifts a week. So overall, like pretty similar, but actually a little bit lower on the rep side of things. Yeah. And just reiterating too, it's still hard for me when I hear moderate intensity. To me, moderate intensity sounds like the zone two training, the lower intensity training But when we are talking about moderate intensity, we're actually talking about those Orange Theory classes, those F45s, Barry Bootcamp, any kind of bootcamp class, even like a CrossFit class where you're spending 40 plus minutes in a like pretty high intensity state. So just to clarify, because it feels like high intensity, but we're talking about moderate intensity. Yeah, I've gotten some questions since posting about zone two in general, just like, how do you track it? How do you know what your zone two is? And this is honestly something that can be a flexible number as well, because as you become more trained, your numbers might also change. Do you want to share a little bit on like how you mainly track? Yeah, for me, honestly, and I think the biggest guideline is that it's a conversational pace. So it is a pace for you where you can still hold a conversation, but you do want to be like, you're not just strolling, you know, you want to be like moving, power walking. So I think that's typically the easiest for people to really find that zone is a top end of your conversational pace. You know, you can do calculations and such. Personally, for me, I've found them to be quite inaccurate. So without actually like having a lot of equipment to do VO2 max testing and all of that, it's kind of hard to determine the actual zone. 
for me, it's between 120 and 140 for my heart rate. So that's how I like to share about finding it. Do you have another way, Nora? I mean, I've done the calculations too, and I think it helps to give you a ballpark, but then really just tuning into your body. Because also for me too, that could look different from week to week. Like I might feel heavier some weeks, I might feel like iron, (laughs) and other weeks I might feel lighter. So I think it is a little bit more variable. And yeah, that very easily accessible, just conversational pace is a pretty simple test. (laughs) Yeah. And a great way too. like for me, it's like, okay, hiking uphill is a great place for zone two for me. So, and a lot of times if I'm hiking and it's hilly, I can still hold a conversation. So I'm kind of like checking my boxes and I'll wear a heart rate monitor and be like, okay, like I definitely want to stay below 145 this whole time, but that's for me. So yeah, kind of test it out and see. You can definitely Google too, like calculations. And if you want to kind of find your range, but how menopausal years, we want to dive into kind of how it changes. I guess you did talk about that. Yeah. I talked about like perimenopause and the late peri and early postmenopause. And I think the biggest difference that is pretty important in postmenopause, like eight to 10 years out. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm way beyond menopause, you actually need more of those sprint interval training. So we're looking for four sets at four times a week to get the same response and still keeping up with the lifting heavy shit. My really love this takeaway too from the episode of what Stacey was sharing of that it increases what's called proprioception awareness or body awareness. And as we get older, that is a very, very important component. That can be the difference in someone tripping off of the sidewalk and falling and breaking a hip, which research has shown can sometimes be like the impetus or the event that causes people to then be bedridden and then they get pneumonia and then they die. Like it's not a small thing. So if you can have better body awareness and just knowing where your body is in space (laughs) can be really helpful. And these sprint interval trainings are really, really helpful for that. Yeah. I think even hearing you say like, oh, I went and started doing sprints and I felt like I didn't know how to move my body. So think about us getting even 30 years beyond today and we haven't incorporated this kind of sprint training where it's very fast twitch and childlike if you will you know like and how much more awkward it gets and I think too when I think about you know telling my mom you need to go do sprints like she's like yeah right what are you talking about this can look very different it doesn't mean you have to put on running sneakers and go to the track and run 100 meter sprints It can be on a stationary bike, on a road bike, where you're just going all out as hard as you can for those 30 seconds. So I think stationary bikes are a great place to start if you are in that older demographic because it's relatively safe. You can also do it on a rower at the gym, a ski erg. And even if you don't have a stationary bike or any of these tools, it could be like really fast box jumps, you know, something that you are used to doing, like jumping lunges, uh, really fast lunges, just like air squats really fast. Start with something that you have available to you and build up to maybe it is sprinting. Yeah. Running in place. I know kettlebell swings can also do. So don't make it more complicated or find barriers like a foreign feeling, but already feeling more comfortable in that too, which is cool to see. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit too about progesterone real quick, because we were just talking about, you know, women versus men, women have the progesterone and how that plays a role during our menstrual years in terms of, well, I guess beyond menstrual years as well, but its role in muscle. So this is actually kind of where estrogen is a positive for our muscle. Progesterone is kind of a negative because it is shuttling carbs away from our liver and muscle and breaking down our lean mass. So it's kind of eating our protein, if you will. And this is like why we need to, as females, really, really focus on protein consumption. Yeah. So I think it's helpful even just breaking it down in like the first half of our cycle versus the second half of our cycle, where first half It's more estrogen and testosterone that's prominent in our body. And that is a great time for muscle building. And that includes when we're on our bleed. So the first half of our cycle is from day one. When you start bleeding is the follicular 
phase and then all the way up until ovulation. So that's the first half where estrogen and testosterone are more dominant. Then the back half after you've ovulated and all of this is for a reason. Like why is progesterone breaking down carbs and amino acids? It's because if you were to grow a human, your uterus would be using all of those beautiful resources to create another human being. So like take a moment and just appreciate. Thank you, progesterone. And that back half when we're in our higher hormone phase is less so the time where we're going to be building muscle, but we want to be conserving. And that is why, yeah, protein needs increasing approximately 12%. Our overall metabolic needs or energy intake increases also anywhere from 8 to 25%. So that's a big difference and why you might have more cravings for carbohydrates in this phase too. Make sure you're really nailing your protein getting enough nutrition in general, but you also do need to be incorporating more of those complex carbs during this time for the same reason. Yeah. I just want to reemphasize too, what you just said is that like protein needs increase 12% in our phase that's after ovulation and up to our bleed. So, and you also mentioned caloric needs increasing, carbohydrate needs increasing. This is like really when the body is using a lot of its energy towards a potential pregnancy or a pregnancy if you are pregnant, if you've gotten pregnant that cycle. So if we want to maintain muscle, then we need additional macros, calories in order to support all the body systems that need the nutrients at that time. So being super mindful of that, I think we often experience more cravings in this phase as well. If we can satiate ourselves at a higher level, really hitting our protein goals. And I think we should go into protein goals next year. That's going to really help support our muscle as well and maintain muscle during this time. So just really wanted to emphasize that because I think that was something that I've recently learned. And I'm like, oh, I didn't like, you know, I had no idea. I would never even think of that, but it makes all the difference. Your energy is so wildly different when you start prioritizing those nutrient needs for sure. Yeah, big takeaway from that first episode that we recorded with Stacy was talking about the RDA or the recommended daily allowance. So, you know, I went to school to become a registered dietitian. We learned like these are the numbers, not the why. And she shared that the way they created the RDA for protein intake for women was studying a group of elderly sedentary men. So they didn't even measure women. Like that's offensive. Like that pisses me off. And the fact that like we don't have updated, that hasn't changed in our curriculum. That rhetoric is not true. So when I talk about protein needs with people and they're like, that is so much protein, it's because we haven't shared the true need, the true numbers. So let's break it down. Yeah. The biggest misconception that I've heard when I've been sharing this to my community about protein needs and the amount of protein that is now being suggested, especially I think for women, people always are saying this like, but you can't absorb that much protein. And I loved Stacey going into this and really explaining it of similar to the RDA that was created off of a male, sedentary six-year-old male, ridiculous. That 20 gram absorption limit was also created because, and you'll see a lot of the protein supplements have 20 grams of protein in them. And that's because the research that's been done on men, that's how much protein can be used to go into muscle development post-exercise. So you work out, you have a dose of protein and 20 grams can go to your male's muscles to build. The leftover will still be used. And our whole body needs and requires different amino acids. Our like neurotransmitters need it. Nervous system needs it. So it'll go to other areas of the body that aren't muscle. So it's not going to be wasted, but the recommended, let's go back to recommendations. Sorry, I tangented. <laughs> yes. So, okay. For the, you know, we were also defining like who is an athlete in the last episode. And that's anyone that is working out intentionally. So even for the general population recommendation is 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram. I really like to just use one gram per pound of lean mass. So if you are a 200 pound individual and you estimate yourself to have maybe about 20% or so of fat mass, you calculate that difference and you would choose your lean mass number. 
again, like eating this in excess is still going to be utilized. So even if you go above that number, you don't need to worry about kidney concerns. It's another one that I hear a lot of backlash on. They haven't seen negative implications up to over three grams per kilogram. So it's about six grams per pound of body weight. I doubt many individuals are doing that. <laughs> that would be insane. The bodybuilders might be close. And that's why they you can't do it for a long period of time. Yeah. And I think the truly biggest pushback that I hear from when I share this with women is like, I can't eat that much. Or how are you getting that much in a meal? Like, that's crazy. Because what I aim for uh, in my reproductive years is 30 grams per meal. And that's the recommendation to hit our leucine threshold, which we can explain what that is as well. But we really want to hit close to three grams in leucine per meal to activate that muscle protein synthesis, which is where our muscles are actually building and developing and getting that response to build and develop. So we need to get over the threshold in order to trigger that, which is important if we're exercising and we are trying to maintain and build muscle, which we all should be. That is the requirement from a nutritional standpoint. So 30 grams at a meal in the reproductive years, this goes up toward 40 grams perimenopause and menopausal years because we don't have that estrogen, that same estrogen anymore to get the muscle response. We need a higher dose of leucine. Do you want to talk about what leucine is and kind of explain that? Yeah, leucine is just one of our amino acids, but that I think is kind of like the key one that helps to send the signals to our body of that we can acquire more muscle. So, you know, we talked about in the last episode too, that a lot of proteins are measured against the protein from an egg white and that being what's called bioavailable, or it's just the way that your body is able to absorb it. So I think we can talk briefly again and summarize like the differences between whey-based protein, a plant-based protein and hitting that leucine goal as well. Yeah. One of the questions I hear a lot too, when I, when I start talking about like, oh, it's because we need the leucine dose, people are like, well, why don't we just supplement leucine? And I just want to clarify too, that while there is that threshold for leucine, it also requires the other eight essential amino acids alongside it to have the same reaction. So it does need to be what is considered a complete protein. And that is really just meaning that it has the full amino acid profile. Correct. Yeah. And we also talked briefly about collagen in the last episode and that it is not a complete protein. So if you are using that as your protein supplement, it's not going to have the same response. And that's just because of what it is made out of. It's not able to be broken down into our body for those specific amino acids that we were just talking about. And it's going to targeted locations in our body more like our cartilage and our joints. So I see collagen still as a beneficial thing, but not as reaching our total protein goals. I see it as more of like a beauty and joint supplement where it's going to help, yes, your skin, hair, and nails, but also if you have arthritis or if you have an injury, I've seen really good studies and also clinical experience of individuals who had better recovery in terms of an injury by supplementing with collagen, but it should not be your primary protein source. Also like food first always, (laughs) like that is going to be the best composition for your body instead of drinking or you know having protein supplements when you have a mixture of foods in your system coming from a meal you have a higher digestive response like more of those digestive juices and things work in concert with each other it's not just these individual isolated components like it's going to be better absorbed when you eat it in as part of a meal For sure. And just going back to the collagen real quick to a follow-up question that I have gotten a lot when we talk about how collagen isn't complete, it's missing. And this was a misconception I actually had about it too, was it was, it's missing one amino acid. And that was why it's, you know, not a great protein supplement. It is missing an amino acid, but it's actually like the makeup of the molecule of collagen protein that doesn't work as well into muscle and it makes it better for joint. So even if you're like, well, if I eat something with the tryptophan, which is the missing amino acid in it, does it then make it complete? And 
the makeup of collagen just isn't correct for muscle benefit, basically. So that's kind of the response to that. I think it's just the structure, like we were talking about, it's like in a helix structure, but you don't have to worry about all the science. Just know like collagen is not the primary protein supplement that we should be using. If you're going to choose a supplement, let's dive into the differences between whey or a plant-based supplement. Yeah. Like Nora said, real food first. And then when it comes to supplements, so whey, we have whey or we have pea protein. I, for a long time, shied away from whey because there is a lot of information out there about it having stomach upset issues. And some people are more sensitive to it. It can have dairy in it, etc. But what you'll see is whey concentrate, which is an 80% whey protein often. And this is one I would shy away from. That's typically like a pretty cheaply made uh, protein. Whereas if you can find a whey isolate, and I usually look for a grass-fed whey isolate, that's going to actually have the highest uh, highest bioavailability and that three gram leucine threshold. So I'm always looking for a high protein dosage too. Like see if you can find one that has 30 grams of protein in it to hit your leucine threshold. See if you can look at the label and see the actual amino acids. If it's not on the label, you can also typically email the brand and ask for the amino acid profile to look and see how much leucine is in it. Versus a pea protein, you do also want to look for a pea protein isolate if you're doing plant-based because in an isolate, you will be as close as you can be with a plant-based to that leucine threshold for the muscle protein synthesis, for the muscle activation. In a pea protein isolate, the serving is typically close to 2.7 grams, so you're almost at that 3 gram mark. I prefer a whey just because it you are actually like hitting that mark, and I don't avoid, like I don't need to be plant-based, so that's my preference. Yeah, I have a lot of individuals that have some dairy sensitivity issues, and I've actually seen that they're able to tolerate the whey isolates, and I think it's just because of the way that it's made, but a lot of them are pretty much lactose-free, and that's typically what is causing people to have stomach discomfort. So my recommendation is like buy a sample size or buy something that you can try uh, and see if it works for you. Don't negate it. I'm also not super worried from a hormonal perspective. You know, we've talked about like choosing full fat dairy and if the correlation between hormones and dairy is an issue for you. Again, this is something that I haven't seen to be an issue with the majority of people. So just an invitation. Yeah. I think oftentimes too, when people are having gut issues or a response to a whey, I just look at the quality of the product. So many of proteins are pretty crappy products. And if they have a lot of fillers or gums or synthetics in them, it's going to cause issues in your gut. So search and find a high quality option. If you need recommendations, I've tried too many brands and have several that I like. So happy to share those too. Feel free to just DM me on Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. Like xanthan gum, carrageenan gum, guar gum, acacia gum, all of those their function is to trap air because that's they're trying to make like a one mixture or homogenous mixture. So if you are using this in a protein shake or in a smoothie, you're adding a ton of air and that gum is going to trap the air. And then when you're ingesting it, it's going to make you feel bloated, even if you don't have stomach issues. So that is why like even a lot of plant-based milks or even the protein powders, a lot of them have gums in them. So it's just something to be mindful for. And again, just another plug for some, a type of isolate where it's typically only a couple of ingredients. It might be something else that they're adding. It's not the whey or the pea protein or the rice protein, et cetera. Yeah. Most of the proteins that I am like, okay, this is quality. It has two ingredients in it. And one is like whey isolate. And you're like, great. And the second one's usually like a lectithin. I think I'm saying that right. And there's soy or sunflower. And I usually lean towards the sunflower. Yeah. It's the best that you can do until you make your own. Yeah. (laughs) Stay tuned. Okay. The last thing I want to talk about, we kind of skipped over this a little bit, but is just how we can best train throughout our menstrual cycle. 
and just dive in a little bit to the different phases. We did touch on this briefly, but I think it's cool to think about it. And this is how we even talk about cycle thinking is, and I think training has become like this too. You know, it was created for men. Men live on a 24 hour clock and women live on a 28 day clock. So I think similarly to our cycle syncing, there's obviously cycle syncing for movement and we can kind of have some guardrails and understanding of what that looks like to the general female population. And then I do like to always make the like caveat, the norm for you be what feels good for you in each phase of your cycle, because I see these like cycle syncing Instagram reels and these cycle syncing recommendations on cheat sheets and that kind of stuff where it's like menstrual phase, low restorative movement, just do yoga, luteal phase, low restorative movement, just do yoga or walking. The luteal phase is half of our cycle. It's like two weeks long. And I personally just don't think that we should do yoga only for two weeks. I mean, if that's what feels good in your body, yes, that's the norm for you. That feels great. But I think by us like creating this generic standard that for two weeks, then our menstrual cycle too, we're only doing restorative movement. We're kind of creating some sedentary people. I know that's a strong opinion. So take it with a grain of salt and do what works best for you. But I'd love to just quickly kind of run through the way that I like to think about it. (laughs) So I think the biggest thing for me is like menstrual phase. We talked about this, but estrogen and progesterone are lowest. And this is a great time for building muscle. If you have heavy periods or a lot of cramping, then it's usually like the first few days of your period. Of course, like please listen to that. Although a lot of times movement, even if it's just going for a walk, is super beneficial in helping to alleviate those symptoms. But the menstrual phase is an amazing time to be doing that strength workout. And Nora and I have talked about this before, but our energy actually increases once we get our period. It's like a wave of relief. So tune into your body during this time and try to take like maybe what you've been told about this phase and how you should feel external and actually tune into your body and see how you feel and go off of that more than what you've been told or heard. After the menstrual phase, follicular phase, ovulatory phase, our energy is usually great. So do with it what you will. Dive into, you know, some of the suggestions maybe we made today. Do those sprint interval training. And then luteal phase, just a little bit different from the traditional cycle syncing I think, and Stacy talked about this, of breaking it into early luteal phase and late luteal phase. So early, our energy is still decent. We're coming off ovulation, and this is still a great time to be doing the, you know, maybe some of our aerobic capacity, like all of our, our normal routine. Of course, tuning into your body, seeing how you feel. But in our late luteal, those five six, seven days before our period, that's really when inflammation is at its highest, our stress response is at its highest, neurotransmission changes, our carbohydrate supply is much different like we talked about because we have higher needs. So those are great days to really be thinking about how can I be doing active recovery, restorative, and again, tuning into your body and what it needs. Maybe you feel fine. Cool. Amazing. But I I do just like to talk about that even briefly so that we can start tuning into our bodies instead of just seeing on paper how we should feel and letting that make us feel a certain way. Yeah. Big permission slip is kind of how I see it. But, you know, I also, like you said, track your own cycle. Like if you're using an app that just bases things off of a standard average 28-day cycle, 14-day ovulation. That's not true for all of us. So gather data about yourself. Like get to know yourself. Me. It's called me search. Do your own me search and see what works best for you. And you know, starting any new workout routine, regardless of your age, can be tricky. Like, yeah, when you you might not feel amazing at first, you might feel more fatigued, you might have some soreness, etc. But it's really about the overall consistency and finding something that works for you to be consistent on. I don't know about you, Nora, but for me, like the consistency part is just huge. And so 
I do have a routine where I'm like, yeah, three days a week, I do strength training and it doesn't matter what phase of my cycle I'm in. I tell myself I'm going to show up for the session, start, do the warm up, and check back in with myself five, 10 minutes in. Hey, how am I feeling? Can I finish this workout? You know, and a lot of times we don't want to start and we're like, I'm listening to my body, like, and I don't feel like it. Create the consistency, show up and tune in. And if you still feel yucky, great, don't finish the workout. You showed up, you tried perfect, amazing. You create like that habit is still there. Put the sneakers on. <laughs> but yeah, a lot sometimes I don't finish a workout cuz I'm like, no, it's not there today, but I still showed up. Yeah. Just initiate. Yeah. That's for me how I create the consistency. Okay, we went over a lot. <laughs> this information is so exciting to me. Just want to say thank you again to Dr. Cece Sims for sharing her time with us last season. And that was our most listened to episode. So I'm hopeful that today we were able to remove some of the science and the high level aspects and bring it down to earth for you. And as Nora mentioned in the beginning, like take what sounds good to you and maybe implement it, ask questions we're always listening. That's why we did this episode is truly because we heard you and you were like, that was overwhelming. And we don't want it to feel overwhelming or over your head. We really do want to make it super approachable. Absolutely. If anything, I hope this inspires you too. And if you've been thinking about starting a routine, like find an accountability buddy, find somebody to get on that journey with you or find a space that you feel comfortable working out in. I think that makes a whole world of a difference if you are working out at a gym that also has other females lifting. To me, I'm really motivated by other individuals moving their bodies. It makes me so joyful. So getting in those spaces, it doesn't just have to be in a workout class. Like find somebody who wants to go on this journey with you and share this with your mom. Like, please. Literally, it's never too late to start. I think, you know, you don't want to jump into these things. And that's where maybe like Monica was saying, starting with body weight work and just working on technique and really nailing form. But like, it's never too late to start lifting and you will see the benefits. We talked about immune benefits, bone health benefits, cardiovascular benefits, cognitive benefits, the metabolic health, like all of these things that are quality of life givers and disease prevention management that is so important (laughs) so important awesome well thanks guys for listening and we will see you next week bye